Welcome to the Awakening Shalom Podcast. The Awakening Shalom Podcast is an opportunity for digital faith formation at Myers Park Baptist Church that accompanies the Awakening Series, a year-long journey of exploration and discernment which invites all people to come learn about the current social justice issues of the day and how they impact our faith. What we are awakening to is Shalom, the Hebrew word for the peace and beauty that exists when we are living in right relationship with God, ourselves, other human beings, and all created things. Awakening Shalom. We are beginning a new podcast series just in time for the election. It is called Feel Political Creativity, Race, Class, and Faith. I am Mia McLean, and I'm here with James Baldwin. (laughs) (laughs) You wish. It's just me, Ben Boswell. Yes, and we are excited to dive into this conversation Listen, this is election season, and by the time you're listening to this, we'll be less than a month away from the election. So um, I hope that you are registered to vote. I hope that you have made preparations to vote, either by mail or early voting or in person on November 3rd. Uh, This is a very important election. Uh, We decided to jump into this topic because it is pertinent as we begin to understand how political our faith is. I'd like to open each podcast with a quote. Today we are hearing from the Mark Charles and his uh, 2019 co-authored publication, Unsettling Truth, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. We were privileged to have Mark with us at the end of September um, and he blew our minds. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed having him worship with us. So good. Um, So this quote is from uh, well into his book. If you get a chance to read it, he dives into the idea of Jesus' political political existence. And And what he says here on page 50 is, the church was meant to be prophetic. The church is the strongest when it is subversive. And I want to jump ahead as he talks a little bit about Christendom, because that's going to be relevant into this conversation as well. The idea of Christendom, an early Christian empire, is an extra-biblical concept that is not aligned with the teachings of Jesus. When the advent of Christendom under Constantine, admission into the kingdom of God became entangled with participation in and protection from an earthly empire. We're going to talk a little bit more about Christendom later, but I wanted you to hear from Mark Charles, hear his words, as we begin to dive into this conversation. One of the reasons why this conversation was born is because I believe Ben and I were having a discussion about what role the church should play in the election, particularly our church, Myers Park Baptist. And I thought, I said, well... Um, I don't really, I don't really know because every church is different, right? So, um, I came from a community where around this time we would be doing voting drives, right? Getting people registered to vote, um, getting, um, people who were released from prison re-registered or registered for the first time in, in the states that allowed that. Um, that's not necessarily our reality here at Myers Park, Ben. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about Um, both of our church experiences 
past and present and how they inform how we think the church should respond or or uh show up in this moment so i'd love to hear about your your past and your how you enter the conversation so when we started having that conversation the two of us together that's why when i knew that this was going to be an important uh discussion for us to have at this moment for our church but also for others who are out there that are struggling to try to figure out what is my what is the relationship between my faith and my church and this political moment that we're in as a nation and this election season, all things aligning plus COVID, so much happening right now, the Black Lives Matter movement, the responses to police shootings and lots happening right now politically and how it's impacting church in our lives. But when you and I started talking, the thing that really struck me is that actually our conversation will, I think, help people to recalibrate how they understand the nature and role of the church in the world, as well as their own individual lives, by looking at the distinctions and differences in your and I's experience with politics and church. And as we talk about it, to begin to kind of reframe and get innovative and creative, as you mentioned with the title of this podcast, about what the relationship between church and the political environment is. I think we are suffering, particularly in the white tradition, from a failure of imagination, a lack of imagination uh, about the political environment. And I just one of the things that makes that abundantly clear here, you and I are talking. Uh, this is on the the day after a, uh, a ridiculous presidential debate, which we'll get into more later, um, and what what this debate and what things like that between the two the kind of the heads of each party and their battle for the election does to people who've been in church their whole lives and are followers of Jesus is an often is often a an indication of our failure of theological imagination about the role of the church in the political we have to recognize that a 2000 year old tradition never imagined that there would come a time where there would be an empire where there were only two choices and every year the entire nation is divided between two choices between two parties we're one of the few nations that only have two parties and so every time we get into this time of year we are divided from each other by the nature of our system and so when people say, oh, we just need unity. No, we cannot get it and we never will have it because we have a two-party system that is designed to pit America at odds with one another constantly. And so the only way to think through carefully, particularly because the church cannot be partisan without losing its nonprofit status in America, although many have tried, uh, we have to think outside the box of our political system. We have to be able to have an imagination that can envision political engagement that is beyond partisanship, that does not necessarily privilege one party over another or um, left, right, conservative, you know, liberal, Democrat, Republican, all, and gets past the binaries. And so one of the reasons you and I are going to talk here, and I'm going to share my history in just a minute, but is to try to help people to imagine outside the binaries. But first, 
to do that, to do the creative imagining thing, we have to see how the binaries have been Im imposed upon our thinking so that we can deconstruct them from a church perspective. So how, how has the system that is the American political system so impacted the church in America over 400 years that we have a difficulty even thinking about the church's relationship to the political, right? Because it's been imposed on us for so long and it's always been about this party system for so long, we just, we can barely even imagine anything outside of, is it going to be this guy or this guy? And it's usually all, right? Is it going to be this party or that party, right? And, and I would say, Ben, it's because of that, that we can't even critique freely. So you can, you can come against a fascist without being partisan because that person, that person is not a party. That person is a person right. who is not doing their job. And right. so it makes it difficult for us to even critique empire because people think that when we're critiquing empire, we're critiquing their party. Right. That's right. And we have to acknowledge for better or for worse. And this, uh, this is one of those statements that just pisses everybody off is that both parties are a part of empire and both parties are a part of propping up empire. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not necessarily an important conversation to have sometimes about which party is going to be the most just or the Mitch Party is going to be the most ethical. Uh, and we can talk about what those words mean down the road in a little bit. But that is an important conversation, but it should never be confused with the conversation that the church has to have about how to be the church in empire, which is a different political conversation than how to be, how to select from two partisan options uh, to have the best outcome, right? Let's not confine our political conversation to the two-party system, and to all that has been the limited and narrow imagination of American politics. And so we will not do that. And we probably have to remind folks of that each conversation we have because people are going to want to pinpoint this and partisan this. And But we're really just trying to have a conversation that helps people to expand their minds beyond this circus that we have, we've, we have found ourselves in. Um, and it may have always been a circus. We can talk about that. Um, but the one that we're in right now, because this focusing on only on that will lead the church down a path of ruin. There is no place for us to go if all we have is this narrow street to walk on. Um, so my history, just to kind of help people sort of understand, I think it, I, this is why this is the most important part of the conversation. And, you know, I grew up in a Methodist church. My parents and family were all Methodist clergy and I, my mom and dad were, were lay people. And that's where I kind of grew to love lay people and the impact that they can have on a church because my parents are like those, you know, uber lay people who get involved in everything and do everything. And, and so um, growing up in the Methodist church, the only time I ever heard about politics in church um, was when my grandfather was referenced after his death that he was involved in some ways in the civil rights movement in, in creating inclusive, trying to create inclusive churches and standing against racial bigotry in the Southwest Virginia. Other than that, never once in my entire childhood growing up in this Methodist church did I ever hear about politics in the church. So that's the first thing. That's, that's a kind of a blank slate moment, right? But then when we moved to North Carolina, uh, we began attending an evangelical church. 
it was supposedly Methodist, planted by the Methodists, but it was run by a, a graduate of Oral Roberts University, which is basically um, similar to Bob Jones, but just in a different state. Um, kind of a Bible college, very evangelical, fundamentalist, and um, that's when I started hearing about politics in church more often. But the politics that I heard about was a very narrow, conservative, right-leaning version of what I should care about ethically, morally, and politically. And it was almost always about sexuality. It was almost entirely sexually driven and every issue that surrounds sex and the issues of that kind were in that particular moment, um, it was, you know, abortion, homosexuality, marriage, relationships between men and women and their appropriate place within the family and the household. Um, and it was interesting because at that time, that was around the same time that Bill Clinton, this is going to date me, but this is around the same time that Bill Clinton and the scandal with Monica Lewinsky happened. Mm -hmm. and now that scandal, I've seen that scandal in so many different lights since then. But at the time, I was like, I was reading daily like what Ken Starr was doing, just following Ken Starr. Because I was like, this, we're going to get him. You know, we're going to get, we're going to get Clinton, you know because I was, I had been hyper taught by my evangelical environment to focus on sexual sin as the worst sin. Now, meanwhile, Bill Clinton was doing a, a number of other immoral things in the world, right? We now know through the work of Ava DuVernay and others that it, Bill Clinton was involved in increasing mass incarceration, maybe more than any other president in United States history. And while he was doing that, all of us were focused on what he was doing with Monica Lewinsky right allegedly. allegedly allegedly right and there's so there's this there's this distraction it becomes this grand distraction right but in my moral imagination at the time i was taught that that was the most important thing because i had been taught that as a christian sexual ethics were the only ethic that really matters we you know we talk about lying and greed from time to time but everybody kind of were like yeah wink wink Lying and greed, those are bad. Wink, wink, sex. No, 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 no. We take that very seriously. Um, and that's why, oh, divorce, add that to the list, right, of anything, because it's all related to sex in some way. Sex and marriage and family, right? That's where the universe of morality was. And that's the universe of politics is, is we were focused on those things, focus on the family. I went out with my mom. We toured the focus on the family site in Colorado. While I, by the way, was looking at the Air Force Academy that's in the same town, I was possibly thinking about going to the Air Force Academy before I joined the Army. So here I am getting ready to join the Army to defend America and my political tradition and my ethical tradition and my religious tradition is focused on the family and all that goes on with that. Um, so that is, I just kind of give that background. Um, so what I saw then was voting guides given out during this time of year uh, in that evangelical tradition that were already pre-slotted for you. So all you had to do is take your voting guide and given to you by your pastor and your church that gave you exactly who to vote for. It was already pre-planned for you, yes. It was just a suggestion. You didn't have to take it. But it was given to you by your church. And it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a suggestion, like here are your candidates, here's some information about them both. It wasn't informational. It was directive. It was actually telling you who to vote for handed to you by 
by your clergy. And actually, that's those are now considered legal, you know, because they are not they're not demanded. You're not actually bringing the the partisan politician into the church to say something. You're actually just handing a voter guide. So I don't know if a lot of people who are listening to this podcast know that this is happening in evangelical sectors. It is. So when you think that white people maybe are not mobilizing to vote, no, no, no. It just depends on which white people you're talking about. They are very clear about it. And it's a very, it's a moral, it's a family values. um, I use those in air quotes um, list, uh, very focused on preventing homosexuality and uh, preventing abortion, anti-women, and then, and almost all Republican, right, which is also a problem with the narrow imagination, right, of, of, of morality. So, you know, a lot of that is, we can talk about the history more, a lot of that is the result of the sort of the moral, southern strategy, moral majority movement that has happened in American history, and it's, and its effect on evangelical churches in America. Um, But, so then, of course, you know, a lot of things changed for me. I was in the army. Um, I didn't go to church very often when I was in the military. Um, then I started, you know, went back to college. Nobody goes to church. No kids go to church when they're in college, you know, like that. Rarely. Sometimes I'm, although when I was in the military school, we had to have forced formation every Sunday and we marched to church by denomination. So as a as a whole platoon everybody would have to get in now you didn't have to come out but if you came out you had to get in formation and the platoons were by denomination so one was like catholic one was episcopalian actually let me put that better it's baptist and then episcopalian was last and there was no catholic this is southern alabama remember this is marion alabama it's 30 miles from selma and so the, the baptists were all up front that was the biggest formation and then it was like methodist presbyterian um, I think there was one more, and then there was Episcopalians at the very back because that's how long the street was. The Episcopalian church was the furthest away. So you got dropped off by formation, and you kind of peeled off, and then you went into church. This is what happened, and that's what's been happening in that town since this military institute was founded in the 18, early 1800s. And every Sunday, they got little soldiers in training marching into their churches to listen to their worship services. And in uniform, we wore uniforms. You know, um, so that's what <laughs> I had that kind of tradition as a mil- as a military officer or a military officer in training. Um, you know, then I went to Campbell University, and then of course Duke, and things started to shift a lot for me. And I attended a, I, I I was working at a small Southern Baptist church um, at the time, and the pastor was much more conservative than I was. But that church, we just kind of didn't talk about it again. It was more like, it was Southern Baptist, but we just kind of didn't talk about mm. politics. And now he and I would talk about it in private, but we, he didn't preach about it. We didn't talk about it with the congregation. And there were a lot of people of different ilks there in that, in that church. Um, since becoming a pastor, obviously I've been focused on different things. I, I even, I, you know, I was working on my PhD in moral theology, which is an adjacent field to political theology. And I taught political theology at John Leland Center for Theology in Alexandria, Virginia. And taught, so I've taught political theology and studied it sort of academically as a discipline. And that changed a lot of how I think about, you know, what the church's role is. And then I've been a pastor now, you know, um, leading as senior minister of churches and doing that for about 17 years. And most of the churches that I've been in had a, we don't really talk about it policy uh, until I got to Myers Park, which is a very different community, right? Um, 
it's just kind of hands off. Like that's not who we are. Now I will say that both the churches I pastored before coming to Myers Park were very separation of church and state. And they removed the flag from their sanctuary uh, and demanded that the flag not be a part of their worshiping community, which I thought was a very uh, radical political move on both, both parts of those congregations. And both those churches worked on LGBTQ issues and had done some different kinds of things related that would be considered political, um, but were really moral, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, but yeah, a lot of it was just don't ask, let's, we don't want to talk about who's Democrat, who's Republican, we, you know, um, and they, we, we just, we don't want to get involved in all that and never anything around election time, no voter guides, no, no voter drives, no telling people, at least, not even telling people to vote. Not, not like the evangelical church where they were telling people who to vote for. It was like, we were not even, we we're not even going to talk about it. It's not even happening. Mm. Not even happening. Um, and then, of course, Myers Park has been a very different experience where, um, you know, obviously involved in political activity, social justice work for a long time, uh, wrestling with politics and church and the pulpit since way back in Heaton, Marnie Owens, dealing with things in the pulpit, not just in practice, but in pulpit, like Vietnam and the Iraq war and LGBTQ inclusivity and uh, race and violence and all sorts of different things uh, throughout the church's history, immigration. um, And so uh, it was a different place for me to walk into. And yet still at Myers Park, there is, there are times where there's lots of resistance to, to talking about politics in church and uh, a lot of, not just straight up outright resistance, but then a lot of like, can we be more balanced? Can we avoid this for a little while? Can we have a break? Um, you know, or uh, worries of, of, of becoming exclusive of, cert, of, of, of more conservative members, lots of, lots of different anxieties about what it means to be Myers Park Baptist Church and to be political. But we also, uh, as far as I know, have, haven't in, in our history had a big voter movement when it comes to election time. Now there's lots of talk about who to vote for in certain Bible study groups and small groups and Bible studies, but at Myers Park even, there's not been um, a history of spending an election year, the, la- the last few months before an election in driving people to the voting booth. And I think what that reflects in my history is a lot of the whiteness of, my, of the white church. And the lack of anxieties around voting comes from a history of never having the vote suppressed of white people. Mm. To not be able to vote like the black church, never having, not to, not to ever having voter suppression, ever being worried about getting to vote or not getting to vote. And because we're not worried about it, that's one thing. The second thing is we want part of, of what, what, what benefit we get from avoiding the political conversation is our ability to engage in politics without any introspection or others examining our politics or putting it up against the light of day where our politics and our religion would have to have a conversation or critique each other. Yeah. How about you? Well, I've learned a lot about you in this time of talking, but um, I, grew up in, I grew up in a democratic city um, in a black church and we had we had a church full of 
judges and doctors and lawyers and people who work for the city, like my mother worked for the city of New Orleans for 40 years. Um, so it was not, we were not stranger to the pastor bringing in so-and-so to speak the, the week before the election, right? Like we had people come in, candidates, but the thing is this, I don't remember it ever being a partisan issue because it was not for the black church. You, you brought in, it was always, which Democrat are you voting for, right? So you would have these like long list of people running for city council or council member number three or whatever, whatever the, the, the title is, right? It was never like, are you voting for the Republican? It was always like, so are you voting for the Charbonnet family or are you voting for the Duplessis family? Are you voting for the, right? It wasn't, it wasn't about um, if we vote for the wrong person, um, all hell is going to break loose. It was more like there were certain families that ran the city government. We knew the last names. We knew the Duplessis and we knew this person. We knew that person. Um, and so it was more about who is your allegiance to and what have they done for your neighborhood? Wow. Uh, what could they, what were they saying they could do for your community? Um, I don't remember it ever being an issue of um, we're about to lose the city to a Republican. My entire life, we had a, a Democratic mayor. <laughs> to this day, we have a Democratic mayor and like black mayors. I mean, Mayor Landrieu slipped in there as this white male, but still come from a Democratic family. Moon Landrieu and his sister, Mary Landrieu, run the state of Louisiana as this like very progressive white Catholic Democratic family. So it, for us, it was never like a partisan issue. We had people coming to the church speaking on Sundays saying, vote for me. Literally, they would, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, the pastor would give them two or three minutes. They would always, almost always speak longer than two or three minutes. But it was this open door policy that, you know, if you were coming into the church, you would sit on the first or second row. Everybody would be looking at you during, during church. And we would know that you were here to try to get our vote. And it wasn't a thing. Like, it wasn't, I don't remember there being much resistance to that. Um, of course, um, my church was located in Center City, New Orleans, and there was a lot of poverty around, the projects were around us, and so there was a lot of movement, uh, uh, voter drives, getting people registered, getting people signed up who, who might have been expunged from the list because they went to prison or whatever happened, right? So there was a lot of talk about make sure you vote, make sure you sign up, but I don't ever remember it being this um, this intense like it is now, I feel like what has been given, this burden that has been given to the Black community is almost um, a myth because, and, and it's very targeted, there's, there's something that's happening with my particular algorithms on social media where I'm getting all these targeted ads and uh, my, my Black friends are also getting these targeted ads towards like Black under 35, make sure you vote, are you registered to vote? And we're seeing that our white peers and our parents are not getting those same ads. And so there's something, there's some myth that's being perpetuated right now about black young people not voting. And I have voted in every election since I was 18. In fact, you know, in, when I lived in New York City, I guess they haven't gotten the memo that I don't, I don't live there anymore. But uh, my council person still calls my phone to say, make sure you come vote in the 13th congressional district because we were very political in my church in New York. Um, my, my pastor of this mega church in New York actually ran for office 
for the 13th Congressional District in Harlem. It's like the part of New York that's like Harlem, Washington Heights. And we were out there. I campaigned. I like made phone calls. I was on street corners. It was very much a part of our way of life. Um, and even in 2016, Bernie Sanders came to our church and spoke. So wow. it, this was this is what we do, right? It, this, it, yeah. it, it wasn't an endorsement. But this is before Hillary eventually got the nomination. Well, but I think there, Clementa Pickney was a wasn't he pastor and and yeah. also running and a senator at the same time. That's that's a huge legacy in the black church, right? So if you look at, I'll talk about Harlem, but any 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 part of the country. So Adam Clayton Powell was pastor of a church in Harlem while he was also in a political office, right? Um, and so that's a legacy that is a part of who we are. You see in, in um, Atlanta at Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, oh my God, pastor's name. I'm going to look it up right now. Warnock, this is the church. Raphael Warnock? Raphael no. Warnock is running for office. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's looking like he's going to win. And this is a part of the culture and legacy of not only Ebenezer being Martin Luther King's church, but also just of Black, particularly Black men, in um, in religious leadership, also seeking out political leadership. And a lot of times that comes with being fed up. It's a privilege to have a separation of church and state, right? As you mentioned before, um, because when you're sitting in a position of power or not in a marginalized group, it's not as important for you. But when you are pastoring and there are people in your congregation who are like dying on the street corner and you're trying to figure out how to wrestle with that, it's it, it provides, um, it lights a fire in you to also want to be a part of the political scene because you are bringing a sort of moral lens to to that to politics and so that's a, that's the history and then of course when I started working at other churches things shifted so I grew up in a black church and then I was licensed in the black church in New York but then in seminary I became an intern at a church in uh, Washington Heights that although we have a rainbow flag on the door and Black Lives Matter I was still cautioned pretty early on in my preaching there that this was a purple church and that I shouldn't just assume that because we had a rainbow flag on the door that everybody would agree with me calling the person in office Satan. <laughs> I had to I had to wrestle with that. I mean, we actually had a member leave. This actually older black woman left when I when I called um, when I called the current administration satanic. Um, <laughs> so that was that. Um, and so th that's when I first started hearing about the purple church, right? I had never, that wasn't a part of my dialogue growing up. I didn't know what a purple church was. Um, and since then I've been hearing a continual conversation about purple churches. Um, and I don't, even coming to Myers Park, it, it's, it's, it's sort of like walking on eggshells. Like, how much can I get away with <laughs> before somebody throws tomatoes at me? It's kind of how I approach preaching. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my background. And I don't have any desire at this moment to run for office, though somebody told me that I should consider it. And I was like, I don't think that, I don't think that's my calling, yeah. but. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a huge part of our legacy um, and, and certainly a different experience. I don't remember being given any, I don't remember my mother being given anything to take home. Um, but it was also, we weren't trying to convince people 
to vote Democrat or Republican. It wasn't about that. It was about, uh, you know, this person says they're going to do right by us. So let's give them a chance. Um, mm -hmm. But also New Orleans is a very corrupt city. So I'm not sure that's the best, that's the best <laughs> practice. Yeah. I, so yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, that your, your history is fascinating, right? So I, and I think it's probably for those, at least for me as a white person hearing you describe your history, it's so foreign. It's so different than mm -hmm. what I experience, and so one a lot of times we uh, I hear white pastors um, justify or maybe excuse is the way they would put it, or differentiate the way the black church approaches political because it, it, they'll say, well, their history is different than the white church. We don't have a history of doing that, so of course, in the black church, it's very different. And yeah. So but I, have, I want to plumb that. Like, why? Yeah. Right? Why, why is it that nobody, you weren't worried about having to convince people to vote one way or the other, and yet white evangelicals are strongly concerned about making sure they know who you're voting for? And, or why are white people just not even talking about it at all, not even trying to get people to vote, just not even dealing with it? Like, the, the, the kind of general responses, if we had three buckets, right, there's like, try to get people to vote Republican as white evangelicals, right? Yeah. Mainline folks, purple churches, as you say, never talk about it, try to avoid it at all costs, maybe lightly touch on it, but neither of these are, are talking about, you know, drives to the vote, trying to get people out to vote. Like the white evangelicals, if they want Republicans, they're not going to try to get people, everybody in the community to vote. They only want people to vote who are going to vote the way they want to vote, right? Yeah. Little, we're not going to talk about voting at all because we don't want to talk about politics at all. So we're going to avoid all things at all costs. And then over here, the black church that is saying, no, 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 we're going to bring candidates in. We're going to talk to them. This part, we may actually have our pastor may run for office and still pastor our church. And we're going to support them doing this and um, a very different. And yet we, it's funny, you said almost like it was just a passing line that the separation of church and state is a privilege. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, what a great way to put it. Um, I might say it a little differently because I think separation of church and state, we need to, we need to distinguish what the Constitution says from yes. the people often use that term. The Constitution just says that it will not establish a church for America. That's all separation of church and state means yeah. from a constitutional perspective. But what the white church wants to do is to separate religion and politics. Yeah, yeah. Right? Not just church and state, but religion from politics. Yeah. And and that is a privilege, right? You know, because it's like, uh, it, it, it's, it's a privilege to be able to compartmentalize parts of your own self. Um, and, and I just, I loved how you put that. I wonder if you would say more about it a little bit. Um, it's, it, it's, so when you come from a context, so it's not just the black church, it's the black, it's the community that surrounds the church. Mm. So when you are coming from a context where you are, um, you are walking with people whose children have been murdered by cops and you are, uh, this is before I was in ministry, so I wasn't like I was the pastor, but if I were, right? So you are pastoring people who um, are, are very impoverished, 
who are whose only choice for school is whatever the raggedy school is down the street. Yeah. Um, so they're not really graduating high school or going to college. Um, you, it's not, you don't have the, you don't have the privilege of being like, yeah, so we don't really, I don't really care who's yeah. going to be our council person. And, and I say this because most of the conversations that I remember and most of the visitors that I remember to my church were not like people seeking to be mayor. Like Mark Moriel was not concerned about whether or not he was going to win. Everybody knew that Mark Moriel was going to win because his father was mayor. So we weren't, we weren't playing these little games like, oh, let's get our favorite mayor person in. It was more like, let's get the council person that's in this neighborhood that's going to do what they say they are going to do. Um, and I, I think that the, the po politics becomes very enfleshed and not a theoretical thing for impoverished communities or marginalized communities. And it's interesting, though, because New Orleans was 75% Black growing up. So it's not like we were the minority. Um, but even still, we know that the, minor the majority doesn't always mean the, the powerful, right? So there's still this like 25% of people who are holding financial powers and political powers. And so it was about, if, if, if New Orleans is 75% Black, why can't, and part, that's part, of, and part of the reason why New Orleans is a democratic city was because of the racial makeup. How is it that we can't mobilize to make sure we are getting the resources that these people say, or people are saying that we deserve, right? Uh, and so that's what, that's what I kind of mean by privilege, yeah. is that because it's so enfleshed, you can't just like not think about it. You're experiencing it when you're walking up the street. Your body is political. Right. And so for, just to kind of reflect that, come from, from a different perspective, for a lot of white people in America... Um, politics is not a life or death issue. Yeah. What political party you are for or against and how you vote rarely impacts your daily life in ways that are visceral and material and urgent, right? Now, some people will see it in their bank accounts, depending upon taxes and that kind of thing, and can pay attention and see the distinctions in there and how much they pay in taxes. Um, based on who is who is the the president or who what party is in power, but for the average white American, for for a lot of white Americans, predominantly middle and upper class white Americans, you know the middle class, which is slowly shrinking, right? Whether or not you know Biden or Trump is president, almost has has almost zero impact on their daily life. I mean, literally, right? For a lot of poor whites, that's different. And we can talk about that later and how that kind of the bait and switch there that has happened. But, but I mean, in, in, and so when you get in the voting box, very few times in my life until very recently have I thought that my action of pressing a button could lead to the death of another human being, right? And, and, and not, lead to the, not lead to the death of human beings who have not been born yet, whatever that means, but literally lead to the death of someone who's already alive, who has no resources, who's already starving, who's already on food stamps, who's already, you know, just trying to make it from one day to the next and not get pulled over by police, you know, just trying to live their life, right? Um, and and so I, I don't think, I think it, it takes a, a certain kind of consciousness raising for white people to get to a place where they realize that what they're doing in the voting booth is a life or death situation 
for people. This is what like the poor people's movement and Reverend Barber have been trying to say, like, if you take Medicare away, here's how many people die in a year because of that. If you take, if you don't, if you get rid of the Affordable Care Act, here's how many people die and don't replace it with something better, right? Here's how many people die as a result of not having health care per year. You know, if you don't change this uh, schools, here's how many kids end up in prison instead of in college, right? I mean, there's the, it really, it, it literally is life and death. And I think white people, for the most part, a lot of them are, are a step removed, are a step removed from that process, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that so much of our faith becomes entangled with this cry for political change because we are following Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. Um, and so a lot of what we're preaching is also in alignment with what we're what we're seeking to to have from our political leaders, whether it's the mayor or a council person. And right. I will I will say that. There was never, I don't remember much talk about presidential. For the black church, it was very, well, in my black church, particularly in New Orleans, because I, I do kind of have multiple churches because my parents went to multiple, went to two churches. But um, in the black church in New Orleans, it was very local. Mm -hmm. um, so we weren't wasting time being, I mean, that I remember, though, I guess when I was born, George Bush, the first one was president, yeah. I think. But I don't remember us wasting time talking about, like, are you going to vote for Gore or Bush in 2000 or, yeah, 2000 was the year, right? It wasn't, that was a, when you, when you got that high up, it was a no-brainer, right? So we were worried about what was going on statewide and local because when, when you get that high up, it's just kind of like vote for the Democrat and sh go home, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, so I, I think that there's something about the, the the viewpoint as well. It seems that a lot of white churches um, have been concerned, overly concerned with the presidential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's interesting. I, I uh, part of that is because um, I, I, I think a lot of local communities were built by white people for white people and have white people in charge of it. For so long that they don't really have to worry so as much about the local politics because they're in charge of the local politics mm -hmm. they start to worry and get anxious about a national change right that may impact their lives on a national scale um, and it just shows the difference in the ways in which marginalized or uh, Im impacted communities approach political engagement Right, and I think that's what we wanted to raise up by the difference between our stories is how how where you your social location almost always determines how you think about the church and your moral responsibility as a Christian in relationship to politics, as well as how you engage in the political or what you think is appropriate and not appropriate yeah. for a church to do or for an individual to do. So that's always contextual and determined by your social location, and I think. A lot of white folks in the purple arena just imagine that this is how it is for everybody you know uh we just we just try not to talk about it we don't want to be divisive um and it's and then but for a lot of folks it's life or death it's not about being divisive is the least of their concerns they got to worry about whether or not the policies coming are going to kill them literally kill them and um and so that's just such a huge difference 
yeah. and approach this question. And we have to, we not, the first step before anybody talks about politics should be to recognize their social location. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You know, do what you and I just did is talk, tell your story. What's been your experience of, of church, of politics and church? And where do you sit in these camps of, you know, evangelicals handing you the voter card of who to vote for, the purple church tradition, and the black church tradition, right? And, and yeah. And that's not to say that the black church is homogenous. No. Or the Latinx church. We know that there are black Republicans. And prior to the era of Trump, it wasn't as big of a deal to have somebody in your church who was voting Republican because it wasn't, it didn't seem as crucial, right? Uh, you know, back then. Um, we always knew that there was a class of black elites who were trying to protect wealth, certain kinds of wealth, and they were voting for those people who promised to help them stay right. wealthy, right? right? So it's not that we, it's a homogenous, but, but we didn't let the community tell us who to be. The church told the community who it was. Mm -hmm. Even in a Baptist tradition that I grew up in, they led for the most part, the church was very clear that it was not tolerating any of that, you know, Republican upholding the elite BS, right? Yeah. Even if we had members in there who were, because we knew that that BS was detrimental to our members who were walking from the projects across the street to come to church, right? Right, right. right. Yeah, so there was something very proximate about the political mo question because people's lives in the very space were being impacted by it. It was so obvious. It was so yeah. on the surface, I guess I would say. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's true in, in some places for, for white Americans too. Um, and which is, it, it's sort of like, so when, I, when you talk about like sort of a, how a, a wealthy black person would vote Republican, that also is as confounding to me as a white poor person who who's who is suffering under policies sometimes that have, have really have really hurt their community right and so there becomes these com questions about you know why are we why do we vote for these why do we get caught up in these political parties imagining that one or the other is somehow out for our best interest right yeah. And I think everybody's trying to tell us one of these parties is for us, you know, whether, whether we look a different, whether we're women or men or white or wealthy, or one of these parties is for us. We're the party of this. We're the party of that. And I actually think the parties are, are doing this now more than they ever have. It's being very, very clear, maybe since the probably the 1920s or eight, late, late 1800s of Reconstruction era where they were like very clear, we are the white supremacist party, right? It, now it feels like we're kind of going back to that where it's like, no, 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 we are the party for white people and that's the party for everybody else. And, you know, this is how it is and deal with it. Like it is what it is. And that's kind of a scary moment to be back in something like that less than a hundred years after that white supremacist movement of the, of the you know, turn of the century. Yeah. And it doesn't so, impact the way we do church. Yeah, it does. It really does. I'd, I, I'd like to take a moment as we begin to wind down to shift into a little bit of theological, I used to call it reflection, but theological imagination. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to take a moment to 
do some theological imagination. Um, it's an exercise that I've been doing lately, just sort of trying to find political roots in the sacred text. And I was talking to Ben earlier, and we were talking about uh, this book called The Politics of Jesus by Professor Overy, uh, is it Hendricks? Hendricks, yes. You know, I have to, I have, to I, I have so many books on my shelf these days that I can't keep up. But Ben was telling me there's another book called The Politics of Jesus that I did not know about. Oh, yeah. So there are, this is also a great reflection of the difference between white theological education and maybe non-white or non-traditional theological education is when I hear the word, the title, Politics of Jesus, I can't not hear John Howard Yoder, a Mennonite theologian who was extraordinarily influential on Stanley Harawas, uh, who was my professor at Duke and one of my mentors. And, and, and I've read a lot of John Howard Yoder, basically everything he's ever written. And then, of course, John Howard Yoder is now persona non grata in the Mennonite tradition for his abuse of his relationship with women interns. So this whole theological tradition, which by the way, we should have another conversation another day about how if a theologian does something stupid is all that they've ever written worthless. That's an interesting conversation. But Yoder's book, The Politics of Jesus, was written at a particular moment, 60s, uh, to kind of talk about how we had lost the, tra the tradition of the biblical, the biblical tradition of, of a political community, mm -hmm. an, alternative, an alternative political community. And Yoder goes back into the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, and then letters of Paul, and basically turns on its head everything that Americans had thought about the politics from the Bible up into that moment in American history. Um, and it's a pretty phenomenal book, I would say. Um, and it does so very, very biblically. I mean, it's almost all about the Bible and all mm -hmm. about passages, digging into things Jesus says about, about the political environment, things Jesus does, the cross itself, what that means, Romans 13, all these passages about, um, you know, about the, the, the political environment that we're in. And so, but, but there's that, when, when you hear politics of Jesus, you don't think John Howard Yoder. I think Oberyn Hendricks. And um, that's the first, that's one of the first things that I, I think the first political theology or theopolitical, yeah. uh, explicitly theopolitical books. And we could talk more about this in the subsequent episodes about the different theological categorizations, but um, Obery is like very well known in New York and he guest taught at, at Union Theological Seminary a couple of times and that's my reference and also The Politics of Jesus which is by Miguel yeah. de Montore who was the a J21 speaker 2018? 2017? 2017, yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, I think about those but I've been doing a lot of theological reflection or theological imagination lately and, and trying to find um, or not even fine. Sometimes it's the, the, the wisdom has found me in the reading of this, um, particularly in Acts, which is post-Jesus, because a lot of times Christians focus on the teachings of Jesus, which is great, but actually what happens after is so important, especially for us right now. So I wanted to allow some time for that today. Um, one of the passages that I've been reading a lot is Acts 1, and this is the scene when Jesus ascends to heaven, 
Um, he's gone, and the the disciples are in this upper room, this enclosed space. They're 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 together, um, and one of the things that was so powerful for me in reading this, especially immediately following the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, is that the disciples, the their first reaction isn't we need to replace Jesus, right? right? Their first reaction following Jesus appearing to them and then ascending into the clouds their first reaction is like we got to get rid of judas <laughs> we have to get rid of this person who is not on our team they are not work they're not helping us with the mission they are not in alignment with what we're believing um and so they proceed to, to replace judas with someone else to fill his spot and i thought that that was so important and relevant because after the death of ruth bader ginsburg Almost immediately, we went into this, this, well, not we, but I'm sure many people, given the news reports that we read, went into this, who's going to replace her? Went into, oh my God, Trump is going to nominate somebody awful, right? We immediately went there. And, and even in terms of the way some of us approach politics and, and, and our political journeys, we are so anxious about somebody coming to save us. And... Mm even if the person that we want to win on November 3rd wins, that person is, is not going to be our savior. There is something else that I feel that God is calling us to reimagine in this season that looks more like what the disciples did than what we're trying to do right now. That's not to say we shouldn't go vote, but it's to be mindful that there is some other work that needs to be done on a teamwork level, on a community level, community organizing level, that is not a savior model. I agree. That the, qu the question of Acts is who's going to replace Jesus? What is going to replace Jesus? That's the story. That's the main character of what has been called the gospel of the spirit by Eusto Gonzalez. It is all about the Holy Spirit's coming to replace not Jesus, but only the corporeal presence of Jesus's body in history. And so the Spirit comes to animate the church and to give church vision and purpose and meaning and direction after Jesus. And as you and I talked about in our, uh, you know, the, uh, talk back, you know, recently after Mark Charles' sermon, the Spirit is more progressive and inclusive than Jesus was at the moment of Jesus's resurrection uh, because the spirit is the ongoing lived presence of of God's dream for the world occurring in human history and that will always be changing the the way in which human beings relate to God to each other to church to Jesus etc cetera, etc cetera. and um and so that's the character we should be concerned about is the what is the and if we kind of apply that to this political moment, the question is, where is the spirit headed? And what is, where is the spirit driving the church, calling the church, leading the church? As, they, as they, the old saying goes, the spirit is always 50 years ahead of the church, right? Six, maybe longer. Um, and the spirit is often dragging the church, kicking and screaming behind it into God's future. And... And so we, our task as followers of Jesus with our, is to imagine, to use our imaginations, as you said, to figure out where is the spirit calling us and taking us and leading us to, in, in this political moment with the creativity of the Holy Spirit and the innovation of the spirit to think about how we engage 
and not to be caught up on replacing replacing Ginsburg with so-and-so or even replacing Trump with so-and-so. It's it, this replacement of individual humans as the salvation of, of the church or America is just, a, it's a joke. It's a game. It's not, that's not the, that's not the Christian political imagination or Jesus, a Jesus driven or spirit driven political imagination, which is going in a different direction. The spirit is not as concerned with empires, right? Or what happens to empires or who leads an empire. The spirit yeah. is animating a community of people who are living an alternative life together and are including politically new people all the time, right? And proclaiming prophetically the good news of Christ's death, which means, of course, God's solidarity with the poor and oppressed is the truth. And therefore, the church is solidarity with the crucified is the mission. And so you, you tie all those things together and you can see the spirit, is, following the spirit is a much more creative and productive and fruitful and fulfilling path for the church than trying to replace people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I think that what, what we're going to learn in the next episode of this podcast is that we need to be always pushing our theological imagination toward what you were just saying. Um, that what we've been given, like you said in the beginning uh, with the partisan, the partisan conversation point, what we've been given is not the end all be all. There is so much more, there is so much greater. If we could allow ourselves to imagine, to really take even the teachings of Jesus a step further, take the Holy Spirit and Acts a step further and really imagine what could be, sure. we wouldn't feel so stuck in the situation that we're in now where it's like vote or don't vote or whatever, whatever the conversations are on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think we have to kind of get our minds, widen our imaginations um, because there's a lot of the political stuff that we're really not in control of. Yeah, yeah. We do our part and then we have to leave a lot of it up to the rest of Americans, even if we vote one direction. And so there's a serenity uh, about learning to figure out a mission regardless of who is at the helm, or regardless of what party is in power that you can come back to. Doesn't mean you're not disappointed or grieving or sad about the loss of life that will be involved in one particular party or another. You grieve that, you lament that, you cry out to God about that. And you fight for justice, but that's what I guess what I mean is then, but then you recommit to whatever yeah. the fight for truth and justice is, no matter what. And you go back to that fight, no matter who's in charge. And we, and that's what the, that's one of the things that I think minority traditions have taught us the resiliency to, to remember that no matter who's at the top or who's in power, that we are, that our calling is always the same. Yeah. That is a perfect ending. <laughs> that is, that's a perfect sermon right there. Um, no matter who or what is in power, our calling is still the same. This was a very enjoyable conversation. I uh, learned a lot about you, Ben, and marching you marching to church is going to be stuck in my... Now, every time I hear Beyonce sing Get In Formation, I'm going to be thinking about... <laughs> that's so a good formation, yes, but it is uh, it's a good critique of what I experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I'm really excited um, for those of you who will be following us to have next episode to have a special guest. So please, please, please tune in. 
Um, she is going to blow your mind because she blows mine often. So um, I'm so excited to continue this conversation. Um, it's timely and needed for such a time as this. So thank you, Ben, for sharing with us today. Thank you, Mia. It's great to talk to you. Yes. All right, y'all. Take care.